Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have former FBI agent John D'Souza discussing both his book, The Para Investigators, and what's known as the Smiley Face Killers. The intro to the show is from a 2010 interview between investigator Christy Peel and Ian Punnett of Coast to Coast Radio. Enjoy the show. Thank you. Well, I, I think I got the setup right. We'll check on some of those details, but I know that throughout the evening, what you're going to hear tonight on Coast to Coast is a, a story that, that almost seems too bizarre to be true, and yet uh, almost a, a story that falls along some pretty predictable lines. Uh, that is to say that there are elements to this story that will just make you nod your head and you think, well, here we go again, a case where... Men are disappearing on college campuses, and nobody seems all that concerned about it. The charge has been made from the very beginning that if this were, if these were women that were missing, if these were women who were who gone for you know ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty days, uh, there would be a much greater uh, uproar. There would be a the people would somehow be more open to the idea that there is a serial killer on the loose here in the United States. Uh, that, But be, because they're men, there just doesn't seem to be the interest level uh, within the police authorities. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to have the same uh, – it doesn't seem to raise the same alarms uh, that these cases would if they were women. Christy Peel uh, used to be a reporter for Five Eyewitness News and has continued to investigate what we – we have, for lack of a better term, we've been calling it the smiley face killers. But, and thank you, Christy, for giving us time on this tonight. You're beginning to feel like that we almost like the smiley face killer angle, the graffiti angle of the story may have been kind of a red herring and something that that kept police authorities from investigating. Yeah. Good evening. Um, it's funny because I think the public has grasped onto the smiley face killers name and image, but I think that in law enforcement circles, it has done negative things for this story and has just perpetuated it as a conspiracy and not as something that is factual. Okay, explain how how the smiley face killer angle started and why you don't think that's the way we should continue to, to talk about it. Well, the bummer in all this is that I blame myself. <laughs> Because um, I was working at KSTP in Minneapolis, and we had been working for a, quite some time with two former detectives, police officers in New York City, who were convinced that these drowning deaths were connected. And when we pressed them for some evidence uh, to show that they were connected, they brought to us the smiley face graffiti that they said they could find at these different locations. And that's what we went with when we told the story in Minneapolis and on your show and on Good Morning America. And that's kind of the title, the name of it, that stuck. Now, the problem is that these smiley face graffiti images are everywhere. You know, we all see them. And law enforcement, that's not proof. You're not going to take an image of graffiti to a courtroom. You're not going to tie it to someone and then tie that same person to a homicide. I mean, I guess you could, but right. it's a little bit more difficult than actual hard factual evidence. Three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, somebody who I heard on an interview. Actually, it popped up on my YouTube feed, and it was an interview he did with After Hours AM with uh, a, by, a guy by the name of Joe Sturgis. His name is John D'Souza. He is 
or was formerly an FBI special agent. And tonight we're going to talk with him about uh, some of his more recent works and also his book called The Para Investigators, 52 True Tales and Concepts of Supernaturally Gifted Investigators. And I did read about uh, a little over half of this book. I really enjoyed it. But uh, Mr. D'Souza, are you there? Yes, I am, William. It's great to be on the air with you great. here, man. Thank you very, very much, nice. John. I really appreciate it. I uh, listened to the interview you did on After Hours AM, and I was really astonished about your analysis on a lot of those cases, particularly the Smiley Face Killers case, which I've been working on. I've done some interviews with other people who've researched that case and read a number of books on the Smiley Face Killers. So uh, I just was really uh, I, I listened to that interview with great interest and uh, was very impressed with your analysis. So I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, talk about your perspective on these cases and also your book. So maybe the best thing you can do to people who haven't heard of you or your name is maybe talk about your background and how you got involved with the FBI. Great. Uh, yes, William, uh, as you said in your kind introduction there, my name is John D'Souza. I was a special agent with the FBI for over 20 years. Uh, during that time, I worked mostly counterterrorism investigations and also some, also a lot of criminal investigation, high-profile cases. I worked, uh, let me see, I worked uh, the Unabomber case, uh, which is a case that went on for nearly 20 years, uh, the most successful uh, domestic terrorist in the history of the United States of America. He was the guy who was sending around little package bombs to people's homes and their businesses, and they would just see these packages that they weren't expecting, bring them into their homes, and they would be then go into their kitchen or something and they would open up the package and they would get blown up. And he did that for nearly 20 years. And I, I write about that in the uh, power of my book, uh, The Power Investigators, uh, True Tales and Concepts of Supernaturally Gifted Investigators. And uh, I also worked, uh, I worked the 93 World Trade Center bombing and also 9-11 bombing as well, uh, the 9-11 terrorist acts as well, uh, that brought down the World Trade Center, as well as many others. I worked with serial killers as well uh, over the years. And so all of this sort of knowledge and experience uh, has helped me to understand when there are criminal situations that just aren't quite right, that aren't where something is really out of place. Uh, that's why I always that's why I always ask people to just, uh, especially people who are interested in investigation in any capacity. I don't care if you're a security guard, a ghost hunter, uh, anyone who is interested, or if you just follow killers and a lot of these mysteries and, and crimes that are that are high profile. I always ask people, please just go read from my book, the my first book, The Para Investigators. Uh, just read the fir the free sample on uh, Amazon. Uh, read the first fifty pages because it's it's a good uh, review of what real investigation is and what true investigators actually do. Because uh, unfortunately, uh, television has pretty much ruined uh, what that means for most people in most people's minds. Uh, they haven't, people don't have a real understanding of what real investigations means. And so when they see something being done, uh, it, whether by police or by police detectives or by agencies, uh, like the FBI, they don't have a good sense for what is proper to do. I mean, people to this day, 
still believe that because of television, they still believe that if you get fingerprints at a crime scene, that's basically it. I mean, the, the thing is over. Right. Or you get a DNA sample. It's, you get a DNA sample. It's oh, it's, it's done. It's called the CSI effect. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Yeah. that's good. I hadn't heard that before. Yeah, that actually enough. came up when I, in my uh, investigation into the West Memphis Three. It's like people think <laughs> oh, that once yeah. they've got DNA, and every case has DNA too. That's it. So yeah. once they get DNA, then it's over, and they can they, you know, the whole case. Exactly. Done. And people don't understand that if you don't have a basis of comparison for the fingerprints, uh, because the criminal was kind enough to do previous crimes, and therefore you know you have the end uh, the NCIC yes. Uh, the NCI uh, database that has previous fingerprints uh, to compare them to or a subject that you have under suspicion that you can take and compare to the fingerprints. Then basically, then you have nothing. The fingerprints don't give you anything unless you have a basis for comparison, you know, and unless you know or if you know that the uh, that the perpetrator was in the military. You know, and therefore the military has all the fingerprints that are basis for comparison. Or the DNA has the basis for comparison. So, yeah, these, these are things uh, people, also, people also believe that polygraphs are an investigative tool. Right. When they're not, I have had, I have stood, and I have stood in, in very high-level uh, multiple murders and had uh, and had uh, high government officials say to me, "Well, aren't you going to bring in the polygrapher and uh, do polygraphs?" And you know that's uh, that's basic investigation is that a polygraph is not an investigative tool. It is it is a coercive tool for after you know who did the crime. That's right. that's what it is. It's definitely not a, an investigative tool for building a case. And I have I have again. People just have no idea. That's why, like I said, I, I always ask people, please just read the first 50 pages of my book, The Para Investigators, which gives a good review of what real investigation means, what it what it, uh, what it signifies. Uh, I mean, the other basic thing is people don't understand what real, and again, one of the chapters and opening chapters in my book is real investigation, what it means. Right. People don't, people don't understand that real invest real evidence can be a rumor it can be something that uh because if you take that rumor that's called raw data and you place it against a bunch of other rumors that repeat the same patterns and the same assertions in them again and again and again that adds up that adds up to real evidence those patterns those clues that you can connect um people believe that anything uh that you cannot put into a test tube and that men can in white lab coats can can't measure and and put and, and and take instruments to that it can't be real evidence. But evidence simply means anything that is likely to make any assertion more or less true. Right. And that I think includes, that right. And I think that's ahead. the basic gist of of your book is that you know you talk about the five sens- sensory box, the fact that yeah. you know there's something beyond touch taste sight, scent, smell, right? That uh, something like that. So I think that you really successfully uh, related that in your book, the uh, and you know talked about you know, in the para investigator book. So I really thought that you did a great job with that. What led you to to write that book? It was basically it was basically that uh, the fact that I had so many even FBI agents and uh, and police detectives who didn't really 
understand the full scope of what real investigation is and what real evidence is. And so I spent my entire career trying to teach people, trying to show people, demonstrate to them what real what real investigation means and, and what is involved with it. Look, as simple as this, um, people who investigate still don't know about when you first come upon a scene, when you first come upon a scene, the first moment, whatever scene it is, any type of crime, even a mystery, whatever, uh, the five S's of investigation when you come upon a scene in the field, the five S's are seal it, separate, sample, survey, and statements. That's it. That's the basics. Uh, it means it, All it means is seal the scene, whether you're using yellow tape or anything. You could use chairs. You could use anything. But you need to close off the area where this somehow where the area, uh, where the scene actually, where it occurs. You got to separate the scene. You got to, uh, whether it's witnesses you're talking about or artifacts, uh, you got to separate them from each other. Uh, you got to sample the scene, which means just means collect, uh, document, and preserve samples. Uh, create that chain of custody also uh, for materials. You got to survey the scene. Uh, it just means a visual survey along with uh, along with preliminary exam, photos, photo log. Uh, also, and then the final step is statements. You got to interview, interrogate witnesses. And here's the key to that: is there's always witnesses, even when you think that there's not. You think that there aren't any. They're they're there. They're out there. You got to find them. So I mean, this is a really basic thing. This is that's a basic thing. Investigation one hundred and one, and people and there's cops who don't know this. You know that's that's you know that's really um, that's really sad. But also, if you come upon a scene as a civilian, and you don't see each of these five steps at least being done, at least and, and they don't have to be done, you know, super th- in a super thorough manner. But they have to at least be touched upon each of these five steps. Uh, and if they're not, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Or maybe something's being avoided. So there's questions that have to arise. If each of these steps, uh, if the five S's, the big five S's of initial investigation aren't covered, mm-hmm. then you got to ask questions. You see, that's things like that is why I initially, when I joined the FBI, I was part of the last. Uh, I was part of the last. Uh, gen- I, I joined the FBI because I be- had become an attorney, and I didn't really want to uh, to really uh, be uh, an active attorney. It didn't really attract me. So when the FBI recruited me, when I was uh, finishing up law school, uh, they I was very interested. It looked a lot more interesting than uh, being a practicing attorney. Uh, so I very much enjoyed uh, enjoyed. What, what year did you start? What year did you start with the FBI? Well, I don't like to date myself, oh, okay. but it was towards uh, almost uh, towards the nineties. Gotcha. So you went to Quantico <laughs> and was were trained. Quantico, Virginia. That's so, yeah. right. What are you a Marine? No, no. But you okay. know, I've, I've seen uh, the Silence of the Lambs. So you know, I, I oh okay. Oh, so you saw the Academy in that movie. Yeah, I was actually at the Academy the year uh, at the same time as they were filming oh, that. Fascinating. Uh, yeah. So I saw them. I saw them with uh, Jodie Foster. Yeah, they do a uh, lot of scenes there. You know, they actually her running yeah, around and yeah. doing the yeah. obstacle course. Did they make you run the obstacle course? Yeah. Oh, yeah. they did? Oh, yes. Interesting. Yeah. And the only other group, uh, the reason I ask you if you're a Marine is because uh, there's the only other group that's very, very present at Quantico is the Marines. They have their training center there. I so, didn't know that. I never knew that. 
Yeah, so we see them. We would see them a lot out there at the academy when I was uh, when I was at the academy. They'd be out running in in groups at the same time as we were sometimes. Okay. Uh, so how so long yeah. did you stay there then? How long did they over over twenty years oh. in the FBI? So, but didn't you have to get pre training, or once you become a member of the FBI, then you go through training? Is that right? Uh, well, you get your appointment. You get your appointment, you get your appointment okay, and you get your uh, you get your appointment to the academy. Mm-hmm. A special agent appointment. Then you go and you spend your time. Get through if you can. If you can get through the academy, there's a lot of people who don't graduate and That's don't true. make it. Uh, a lot of people uh, they get injured, uh, or they get injured, or they just decide against it for whatever reason. They don't quite make it. Do you know what? The uh, but attri- I did. Do you know the attrition I, rate? Do you know the attrition rate? It goes up and down, but I would I would estimate it probably about forty percent. Wow, That's for the most high. part. Wow. Yeah, That's it is. Difficult. But I will tell you. But let me give you a quick PSA. Uh, if anyone ever uh, anyone ever comes to your door, uh, whether they are men in black or any other uh, agency, and says that they are FBI agents, you always ask for and I'm t- and for your listeners too. Anybody comes to your door, anybody claims to be an FBI agent, you always ask for their badge number in addition. Into their name, of course. Uh, my badge number, it, it publicly leasable information. My badge number is and always will be badge number 10585. That is my badge number. And that is how you prove that someone is actually an FBI agent. Well, that's great so information. They are allowed because uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people out there who are pretending to be FBI agents and they really aren't, believe it or not. Well, that's there is that, but once you have once you have that badge number, you can then of course see and verify. Isn't really uh, an FBI agent. Same goes for any sworn officers, of course, officers and any uh, anyone who carries a gun and a badge always. Gotcha. And it's very advisable to get that number. Great. So you know, getting back, so you were you were in the FBI for twenty years. You've seen so many important cases from the inside. What led you when you wrote this book? I would say that it it has concepts in it that may not be as buttoned down as as books published by the FBI, because I think your position is there's another kind of intuitive paranormal aspect to investigating that's important. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, and that's what uh, para-investigation actually is. It's basically uh, using normal methods and modalities of investigation, like what I was just talking about, the five S's of coming upon a scene, initial investigation, things like that. Uh, But in para-investigation, you also allow the metaphysical aspect of of the investigation to come forward. You use super-conscious abilities also to resolve crimes and mysteries, uh, which just means that uh, we as officers, as agents, that we should be able to no longer have to hide uh, the abil- our intuition and our abilities that uh, sometimes manifest themselves during these investigations. It happens a lot, and it happens in a lot of the most, uh, in a lot of legendary cases, it happens where investigators have nothing, n- nothing more to go on than intuition and some kind of metaphysical ability and it comes forward and sometimes it saves people's lives 
Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned, uh, you know, you use a couple cases in here, like the Atlanta terrorist bombing where the guy yeah. sensed that there was something amiss, you know, and the, what was Absolutely. his name? It was, uh, that was Richard Jewell. Jewell. That's right. Yeah. And that was the Atlanta, Atlanta Olympic park bombing, which I believe was like in 96. Uh, and, uh, he was basically just a security guard who nobody ever expected anything great from him. But there was, you know, there was one night where he became the greatest investigator of all time because in Olympic Village, when there were thousands of people at one in the morning that were streaming everywhere and media that were doing interviews of athletes and uh, families, families that were walking everywhere. Like I said, thousands. The place was packed, packed with people. And he just, he found that giant hiking bag, you know, it's about almost five feet tall, the kind that people pack everything into. And he, instead of hauling it into lost and found, like most, uh, most people would, uh, he actually put up a police line. He did what I just said in my, in my five S's of coming upon the scene. He sealed the, he sealed the site. He took tape and uh, objects, and he set up a perimeter around this dangerous, po possibly dangerous uh, package. And he set up a perimeter, and then he shoot people away from the from the area. And and uh, everyone, people got it on camera. People got it on camera. What he was doing, and it was on CCTV also. And he never touched the package. Like also again, like proper procedure. He never touched the package, and but he started yelling at people, get out of the area, and people weren't listening uh, because he's just some paunchy security guard and they didn't care what he had to say. But he started using his body, he started waving his arms, he started getting really desperate, and his voice started, he started screaming at people, get out of the area, this is a dangerous package, a very dangerous package. And he was able to do enough of that he really got hysterical. He screamed people out of the area. They started listening to him. They started leaving the area. And just as he did that, you know, the bomb went off. And instead of killing, you know, 50 or 60 people, uh, it, it almost, it, it ended up killing. There was just one person killed. Right. And they blamed that him, guy, right? Didn't they like? Yes. Yeah, that's right. yeah because as investigators uh, on the scene, on the ground were watching these videotapes of him more and more of him shooing people away of his voice going up in pitch of him getting hysterical as he was as he was shooing people out of the area and using his body to actually uh, to actually bash people out of the area uh, it became apparent what became apparent to me too as i watched the same tapes that he knew it was a bomb and he did he knew it was a bomb but he never looked inside the package so how could he possibly know it was a bomb? Well, the uh, the investigators on the scene, which it was the FBI, the investigators on the scene, they decided the only way he could know it was a bomb was that he was a bomber. That was uh, the only conclusion they could come to because they were completely based in the material world and they had no ability to look beyond that. My, my conclusion was very different. I concluded that he knew it was a bomb because he had some ability to remote view or to see supernaturally inside that package that there was a bomb there because he did know it was. And unfortunately, uh, the authorities and the media, uh, they uh, took about 88 days and they ruined his life. 
accusing him of being bomber, putting out that narrative that he was a wannabe cop who was trying to create uh, this, this terrible catastrophe so that he could be a hero. And that's what they ran with and basically ruined his life. And it was, there was a lot more, there was a lot involved with that ruining his life part. Right. And I'm then just, they found out it was Eric Robert Rudolph, right? And then it became well, him. Eric Rudolph actually confessed that's to being the bomber. And I'm sure he was quite upset at somebody else taking credit for his hard work uh, because he was a dedicated terrorist and he had done not just this bombing, he had done many many bombings and so yeah that he that was something that he actually confessed to and it was you know it was just tragic what happened to him and then my book is uh is filled with stories my book the power investigators is unfortunately filled with stories like that of investigators that use their abilities uh in a world that's not ready for their abilities yet of course the world take their benefits though right you know in the form of having their lives saved but i mean aren't i mean wouldn't you say that a lot of investigators get investigators gather the facts and then they rely on instinct and intuition when interviewing suspects so there's always been kind of a you know a paranormal approach in some senses to investigations would you agree with that no not in my experience (laughs) they they you know maybe you know the old-time cops you know you're talking about uh you know the real the real experienced police detectives who who teach the rest of us how things really should be And, and yeah there are some of those but unfortunately you know i I wasn't exposed to too many of those. Uh, most of the most of the law enforcement officers I've always spent time with are just collectors of fact, collectors of you know gatherers of fact, and you know analyzers of fact as well, analyzers of material, and they don't they, and they and they're so browbeaten, especially as you go, you know, further up in the levels of law enforcement uh, to organizations like the FBI. They are so browbeaten into, you know, don't, you know, we don't want to know your intuition. We don't want to just stick to the facts. Just give us what you can, what you can prove, what you can uh, actually prove with hard evidence. By the way, I have a, I have a code translator. When people uh, say things to you like, uh, what hard evidence do you have? All that there, that what that phrase really means is what what evidence do you have that uh, mind-numbed robots can actually uh, go along with? <laughs> right. That's funny. And, and that's actually a, a consistent theme, I think, in your book is that, you know, you kind of uh, uh, criticize this kind of rote learning from society. And, this, you know, I yeah. think that that's kind of one thing that you're railing against in yeah. throughout your book is there's, there's other things other than strict materialism. I was uh, I was part of the last generation of FBI agents who were taught in an old school way as far as crimes and uncovering mysteries. We were taught a very specific way of doing things, and that that way I I believe it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I was taught, for instance, I'll give you a quick example. I was taught when I do when I do an interview. Uh, you go through an interview and you always have, of course, you always have to have two, at least two agents uh, doing an interview. But you have the first agent with, there with a notepad talking to the to talking to the suspect, to the target, and they are taking notes as they are asking questions. But the second agent, you're supposed to have him there not doing anything. 
not taking notes. He's just supposed to be sitting and watching the subject for signs of discomfort, signs of uh, deception, and signs of uh, of comfort, of actual uh, forthrightness, of being truthful. And that's what they're supposed to do. That's what the second one is supposed to do. And and that's and you look at the body language. You have to study the body language. You study the face. Which way are they? Uh, the feet are pointing. The what's going on with the hands? And at the end of that interview, you also were supposed to provide some kind of assessment on possible truthfulness or even truthfulness, but comfort, comfort and or possible signs of deception. And that's I don't believe that that's done anymore. Uh, it's what, not now. What they changed. Uh, they <laughs> now they record uh, they record uh, interviews and that's about it. They wow. now they record these inter. I mean the important interviews. Let me put it that way. They record the interviews, and the uh, FBI guy is just basically there. I don't know as a I don't know backup. I guess with uh, with notes. And I always say to FBI agents, I've always said this: if you don't do anything more than a robot with a tape recorder can do, then eventually you will be replaced by a robot with a tape recorder. Wow. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of old-time uh, detect- police detectives that have gone through the exact same process that I'm telling you right now that I went through. Interesting. Um, you know, when you're like that, what, what would you recommend as far as this kind of para-investigating to facilitate that change into a more intuitive or, or paranormal investigator? What would you recommend? What I what I always recommend is the same. I always recommend that uh, that police departments and um, training academies read my book. That they read my book. That they spread it and talk to each other about some about the themes, because because the only way to allow law enforcement to expand and to something something in, a, in an honest way is to actually go through the testimony of these cases where people's lives have been saved over and over and over again. And large numbers of people's lives have been saved by by officers and agents pursuing their intuition, pursuing their abilities that are not in this world. And being able to look at the Millennial Bomber. The Millennial Bomber case was a the case in 2000 where a, a female customs agent had had absolutely and this is in my book the power investigators where she had absolutely no physical evidence against uh, this middle eastern gentleman who was very nicely dressed who was had all his papers in order who had his his car was uh, was on a ship he was ready to come into come into i believe he was coming from Canada. He was a Canadian national. And she, but she just had this feeling. She just had this feeling that his answers were rehearsed and that something wasn't right. Yeah, you wrote that and, the, the chapter heading was too perfect. Yes. Yes. That's the phrase. Uh, it just, everything about him was just too perfect. But, you know, it's like, when was, the, but how, when was the last time that, like you go out with a girl and you feel like, oh no, she's too perfect. This is too much. I, I can't. I can't do this. You know, it just doesn't seem like. It just doesn't seem like. How could? How could that be a basis for intuition? Because I think what she had was more than intuition. She was being told something. Uh, 
from a different place. Because sure enough, as she kept on interviewing him and interrogating uh, this young man, uh, he she was able to develop not really probable cause, but she was able to develop enough reason because of his nervousness to just be searching his car to be searching his car and that's what they did and and even that she took a big risk she took a big risk by doing that because she really didn't have any probable cause i mean you know you know how the old game goes you know oh he was glancing nervously you know he was glancing nervously he he started to uh, sweat a little bit from his forehead it's like yeah sure okay but she had to use whatever she had because she had to search that car. She knew there was something in that car. And sure enough, the searches, uh, even though the dogs were negative, uh, the searches went through and they found that in a big amount of white powder. And, and she was like, and everybody was high-fiving her because they were like, yeah, cocaine. They were like, this is great. This is, like, this is like several pounds of cocaine. This is amazing. And they were like, what the hell is and they were and her her compatriots were saying or you know what are you a witch because this was amazing that she found this in a hidden compartment underneath uh, underneath a place where nothing should be in his car and so they couldn't this would have been the largest cocaine bust that any of them had ever come across in their lives so they were really looking at her and saying you are definitely some kind of a witch because this is unbelievable uh, this guy had nothing had no suspicious nothing suspicious about him at all and as they're doing that of course they're testing the white powder and you know you know the story uh, it comes back completely negative for cocaine or drugs of any kind so now these guys were like they didn't know what to do. They were like, they were completely stumped. And then somebody just got the bright idea, you know, we got to, we got to test it for some kind of, for other things. And they were like, what other things are there besides drugs? And they said, we got to test it for maybe it's explosive. And that's finally what they did. And as soon as they did that, the guy, of course, breaks, breaks, makes a run for it, tries to carjack somebody. And uh, then they bring him down. And eventually, of course, uh, they got rid of all the dogs they had, which were all drug dogs, and they brought in a new shift of dogs, and all the dogs were uh, explosives dogs. And of course, they found out that it was an enormous amount of explosives, and then they continued tearing the car apart, and they found all kinds of uh, timers and mechanisms, and they they found out that, that uh, yeah, not only was her intuition uh, uh, justified, but I was justified to a level that none of them dreamed of because sure. this guy had enough explosives to kill dozens and dozens and dozens of people. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, there were also hunches before 9-11, right, uh, that were not recognized uh, yes. by higher-ups. Do you want to? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. My book, uh, my book, uh, The Power Investigators, opens up with the story of the 9-11 Indigo Kids, uh, the Indigo Kids of 9-11. That's a better way to say it. And they were... Basically, all these little kids all over the country, there are dozens of cases of these little kids who in the weeks and months before, actually, no, the weeks and days before 9-11 terrorist attacks happened, were having visions and dreams and experiences of the actual 9-11 event. And they were, you know, there were little, I can tell you there's, and these kids weren't reported by their parents, of course, but they were reported by caretakers and uh, babysitters, uh, school bus drivers, by people who were who were around these kids when the incidents happened. We had, for instance, we had a little girl who was just sitting on a playground, 
and she was not playing with any of the other kids. She's by herself, kind of doodling in the dirt there. And a teacher comes over to her and says, says uh, sweetheart, are you okay? And the little girl says, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just thinking. And then the teacher turns to walk away, and the little girl grabs her skirt and pulls down violently and tells her, please, tomorrow, stay away from tall buildings because tall buildings can fall down, and they sometimes they fall on people. Wow. And the teacher just chalks it off to, I guess, too much sugar and walks away. We had another little boy who was creating finger paints. And um, this is actually this is actually illustrated uh, on, the, on my Amazon, on, the, on my trailer for the book, The um, Power Investigators. Uh, and it's uh, a little boy was just creating a finger paint of some scene. And teacher comes over and says to the little boy, oh, that's very beautiful. These two tall skyscrapers, they're glowing and there's angels flying out of them. What are the where are the angels flying to? And the little boy said, Those buildings are not glowing, they're on fire. And those are not angels with wings, those are people who are on fire and they're jumping out of the buildings. So again, the teacher walks away and just thinks it's like too much sugar or something. Uh, had another little boy who woke up screaming on his school bus because he was having a nightmare of people on fire in a building and the building collapsing on them. Uh, so all of these cases didn't mean anything to anybody when they happened. Uh, but after 9-11 happened and there was this huge campaign for see something, see anything, say something, and then report in and all that, then these people reported these experiences and they told about these kids and these big strapping uh, uh, law enforcement guys, uh, FBI agents and officers, because the, these task forces were all over the country. They had to go and interview uh, eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds and ten-year-olds who were having these visions and these dreams and these uh, these experiences. And they had to treat it as a real serious thing because it had to be, it had to be vetted out for any possible connection to terrorism. Interesting. And, yeah. So, of course, every one of these cases was negative for any, but these yeah, poor... I had yeah. read about other premonitions. People had claimed that they had seen, you know, the towers go down before September 11th. So I, knew, I had heard those kind of, you know, rumors of those types of things happening as well. Not the children that you wrote about, but just in other, you know, readings online. Yeah, I have too. I've heard about a lot of adults yeah. that uh, had them, but, you know, who's going to uh, who's gonna report them? You know, these... Uh, yeah, these are kids being reported by other people. Right. So that's that's what makes it uh, particularly uh, interesting. It's remarkable. Yeah, um, you know, you had you you had talked about kind of uh, para investigating into UFOs and things like that. I found it interesting that you didn't give a lot of the UFO stor stories much credence. You talked about a kind of six percent rule. Can you talk about a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah, um, you know, there's a there's a great uh, former NASA scientist named Stanton Friedman, and he gets he gets a lot of uh, flack from some from a lot of his fellow scientists, uh, and he has a great saying I like. He says, "So what if 95% of UFO cases are fraud or untrue or just not enough evidence to to uh, prove whether they are." or not that has nothing to do with me all i care about is the five percent if that of ufo cases that are actually 
completely unexplainable and quite possibly extraterrestrial. And that's how I feel about it too. You know, even if there's, even if it's only a tiny percentage of UFO cases that are completely unexplainable and possibly extraterrestrial in nature, and that adds up to huge numbers yeah, still big. Of, of UFO cases every single year in every major country. So yeah, they, I do believe that uh, UFO, that even a tiny portion of these cases actually are truly unexplainable and are actually are probably are extraterrestrial nature or as i would say extra dimensional see i was going to ask you that question do you believe in actual outside of this planet or outside of this dimension you know i'm more i opt i mean i haven't really researched ufos as much but i opt towards the extra dimensional uh quality of these not extraterrestrial yeah, I recommend that people uh, get my book, The Extra Dimensionals, True Tales and Concepts of Alien Visitors, uh, because I go into a lot of cases, uh, some of the well-known classic cases of, uh, of extra-dimensional uh, experiences by people, and some cases people have never heard of. Yeah, because I do believe that alien visitors are real, that they are uh, visiting the Earth through the Earth, but I believe that they are not necessarily physical in our universe, uh, that they are not uh, cramming them. They are not like humans, like we've been taught. Uh, they're not uh, cramming themselves into these little metal shells and sailing across the galaxies uh, at the speed of light or, or more than that. Uh, they are actually extra-dimensional. They are appearing here through the Earth and from other dimensions of reality. Yeah, and you mentioned in your book that some of these experiences these investigators are having are extra-dimensional, that they... Are having these, and I thought that was fascinating too. Like these encounters with spirits or encounters with events are extra dimensional. So that was that was another interesting aspect to your book. Yeah, and it does seem like it's. Uh, I, I believe that the UFO, uh, the UFO extraterrestrial experience has probably has more in common with ghosts and maybe crypto creatures as well uh, than it does with anything physical. Because it just seems like a lot of these these uh, these phenomena appear to be extra dimensional in nature, appearing from someplace else and going back to another place as well. That's fascinating. I think that's interesting. Um, we let's see. Why don't we talk a little bit about some of your kind of uh, experiences in the FBI, some of the cases, if you mind talking about that maybe, and then we can kind of wrap up by talking about your opinions on current events. I mean, I know that you had talked about the smiley face killers. I would love to hear, hear your opinion on that, too. Um, well, let me let me get into the uh, smiley face killers uh, by, by saying, by concluding with a statement uh, on the on the FBI. Okay. Let me tell you this: uh, the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation is a criminal. Uh, it's a criminal investigative agency. It's also it has a second. That's its primary purpose for existing, uh, and it has a secondary purpose, which is collection of intelligence and intelligence related investigations as well. So that's a secondary, but primarily it's criminal investigative agency uh, and that's its purpose now when you know something is going wrong with the that organization is when they are fulfilling a political purpose because they're not a political organization and they shouldn't be doing political things now 
here's a here's a statement that uh, that I found shocking. And you know, you're not supposed to read on radio, but I have to. It's just a short statement, and there's no other way except to read it. Yeah. This is a this is a statement concerning the smiley face murders, uh, as they phrased it, the smiley face murders. And well, let me tell people uh, for any who uh, any who don't know, the smiley face uh, killers is the theory that refers to the many drowning deaths of college age men uh, throughout the United States. Majority, vast majority of these drownings happen after leaving bars or nightclubs, early hours of the morning or late at night. Uh, and these young men always happen to be uh, very good-looking, uh, very uh, bright, athletic. They just always this—that's just the way these these murders uh, these murders occur. And the most logical, accepted scenario for these murders. Uh, is that the young men were drinking uh, and wandered off in a drunk stupor or on drugs and and they just fell into a body of water, a shallow body of water usually, almost always. Uh, And so, of course, we have, uh, there's two uh, retired detectives from New York City who uh, put forth the smiley face murders theory at first and developed evidence to show that it was uh, to support it. Right. And uh, a great deal of evidence, I might say. Gannon and Duarte. Uh, yes. And um, as far as, uh, and I don't want to talk about the individual cases because I'll have police chiefs calling me up and saying saying nasty things to me. Uh, but But I can talk about the cases generally. And generally, every single one of these young men were very fit, a lot of times varsity athletes uh, with their letters and everything, popular, uh, very good-looking young men by any standards, not on whatever you consider good-looking to be. Some were good and, swimmers, too, very good swimmers. Yes, and regardless, they were great athletes in some sport somewhere. And the, and the theory comes, of course, from the fact that graffiti always appears in the form of a smiley face that it's, it appears near the body of water where uh, where the murders uh, where the the deaths occur and the detectives believe this this mark this smiley face is the mark of a group of serial killers that is the smiley face uh, murder uh, theory now having said that let me let me just show you an organization doing what they're not supposed to do here is a statement from the FBI National Press Office, and anybody can look this up online. It's the FBI statement regarding the Midwest River deaths issued April 29th, 2008. It says as follows. The FBI has reviewed the information about the victims provided by two retired police detectives who have dubbed these incidents the, quote, smiley face murders, unquote, and interviewed an individual who provided information to the detectives. To date, we have not developed any evidence to support links between these tragic deaths and any evidence substantiating the theory that these deaths are the work of a serial killer or group of serial killers. The vast majority of these instances appear to be alcohol-related drownings. The FBI will continue to work with local police in the affected areas to support as requested. Okay, this is the announcement that they put out and it is completely inappropriate for them to do so uh in other words they were ordered by somebody to put out this statement contrary to their basic function they are this is a political statement when you're out there they are there to state 
if a crime has occurred and if if this is you know if it's terrorism it's whatever that's what they're there for they this saying that this is there are no smiley face murders that's the function of the mayor of the town that's a political function folks law enforcement has looked into this they have uh they have investigated this thoroughly and i've looked at it and i'm just here to tell you folks and again this is an announcement from the mayor of the town that she should have given uh and i'm here to tell you there is no serial killer folks you guys can you guys can relax this does not this does not exist that this is not an investigative statement to be made and so that right away when i see the fbi put out a, a completely inappropriate statement like this that a serial killer does not exist because they're there to tell me that a serial killer does exist right. and that a crime is being committed. That's their function. It's like a positive <laughs> statement, not a negative <laughs> yeah. statement. Why exactly. do you, what are the politics? Why do you think they put that out or who because told they them? were Because they were ordered to. From who? Ah, that's the relevant question, isn't it? Right. Because as far as I can see, you know, the, uh, the, the director or the president doesn't, doesn't give a crap about uh, whether there are smiley face killers or not. They don't care. So who would care that much? Well, to me, I believe it's the people who are sponsoring the smiley face killers, the people who are above national authority. That's what I believe. But that's a little bit that's a little bit further on uh, although i think we just have an hour right okay well we can we so, can go as far over as you like i'm oh, okay, uh, good. very comfortable all right I, mean, then I just don't i, I, I don't want to put you you know it's friday night i don't want to <laughs> you know make you cut into okay, dinner great. with no no that's good i'm glad right. you told me that okay. because the people i believe the order for this when you see a national agency acting completely against their interest against their mission and doing something that they're not supposed to be doing that means they were ordered to from a very high level and as far as i can tell the president wouldn't give a crap about this situation so do you know when they that made o- that announcement do you know what year the, the, the- april april 29th 2008, 2008. In, res- okay, so in response to the midwest river deaths okay great thank you and I'm so I vaguely remember that yeah, and so when I see that, I know that something really big is going down. Uh, and because of my knowledge, skills, and experience, I can tell something smells really bad here. And to me, as far as I'm concerned, the only ones who would have given the order to to for the FBI to put out a statement like this are the same ones who are giving the order for all the police department, various police departments to make sure that they find uh, a high level of alcohol in the bodies of these young men, uh, that, uh, that, uh, there's a record of depression in the background of these young men when there is none, when it doesn't exist and to find other ancillary things that explain away these deaths. Well, they make, as, they sound, a lot of these people sound suicidal, but they're not, suicidal. Yes, they're actually out exactly. having fun partying hanging out with friends there's no plan i mean it's a very strange thing to plan a suicide but go out with friends till one o'clock at night it doesn't right it doesn't make sense right so why are they so interested in generating this nonsense about uh suicide and depression when it's so easy to when it's so easy for the family just to prove that it's wrong and it's not right and the answer is i've talked to many of the families they don't believe any of these stories of course dakota james recently was found in the Ohio and Pittsburgh, missing 40 days out with a night with friends. And, yeah, um, yeah I mean, he wasn't in the water 40 days, I can tell you that. Absolutely. He was somewhere. Right. And so where was he? Somebody had him yes. uh, in a place. 
right. in a place. And again, I, I don't have hard evidence of this, but they had him in a place where they were committing some kind of ritualistic actions that were going forward over a long period of time. And that's that's what I believe that they were doing. Again, I don't want to comment on any individual case. I understand. But, but what I want to say is when you see uh, – but I want to comment generally that when you see lots of police departments across the nation all coming up with the same script, the same script, it's almost like it's issued to them and they're told what to look for uh, because – because look at this. The reason I read this statement from the FBI is because it's part of it is, and you know, there's there's a lot of tragedy here, but yes. part of this statement just it makes me chuckle. It makes me laugh because it's just so funny. Because the most ludicrous thing you can say, you know, this is and this was written by an attorney. Obviously, you know, you're an attorney, so yeah, am I. So I can so hear we, the. I, I know the attorney hear. language. You know, <laughs> exactly. when Alex Jones makes a general exactly. thing about PizzaGate. I, it yeah. just sounds exactly like an attorney wrote it. I mean, it's just like, yeah. come on, you're talking to somebody. Exactly. Somebody's so so listen to this sentence. To date, we have not developed any evidence to support links. between. And this same sentence is given to all the police departments as well. To date, we have not developed any evidence to support links between these tragic deaths and or any evidence of substantiating the theory of the smiley face killers. Okay, so basically what they and all these police departments also, they use the same sentence. It's almost like it's issued to them from oh, someone. Just astonishing insight, and, man. And, really what that that, yeah, yeah, and what that sentence is really saying is, well, you know what? That thing that you're saying exists, it doesn't exist because I haven't found any evidence of the thing that I don't care about and that I don't believe in anyway. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not looking for that. But and I didn't find that, so therefore it doesn't exist. It's circular it's, logic. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's wow. Circular logic. Somebody is feeding these police departments these denials. Wow. Exactly. It's just incredible it, because these are same. The real the case that got me interested in this. Well, there were other things that got, I kept seeing smiley faces around in weird places that outside of these cases. But it was the Joey Labute case where he was in Columbus, Ohio. And everybody, he was out at a bar, and he disappeared, and that was it. Like, this guy's fitting the profile. They're looking for him, and sure enough, he's found in the Scioto River, like, a month later. Well, where where was this guy? And it, his body was in decent shape. Very, very strange, and there's a real, like you said, there's a real heartbreaking aspect to these cases, because in my research, I went to a Facebook page where a mother of her son, who was lost to one of these deaths, 2008, is posting every birthday every christmas it breaks your heart like she's missing she wants her son back so uh, i talked to some of the mothers of these people and none of them believe the plea none of them none of them said oh yeah he just committed suicide none of them believe it no i haven't had one that said the police story's correct maybe paul coach that's the only father out of 50 who said it yeah. And again, let me repeat, I cannot comment on individual cases because the relevant uh, P- the relevant PDs will contact me and, and, and harass me for specific evidence. And I don't have that. What, what I have is I have the knowledge, skills and experience to know when there's patterns and clues that connect to each other over dozens, yeah. dozens of cases. Yeah. That come together to show that there's something more going on here. Okay, and William, here, listen, this is why I 
want you to be on I want you to eventually be on television uh, going around to these shows talking about these cases uh, there was a in this and I'm sure I'm sure you know about this there was a this is the next ludicrous state this is the next ridiculous statement that I'm going to talk about uh, besides the FBI statement which was ridiculous um, there was a criminal profiler I don't even want to say her name but she's the one who kind of piled on and went on TV shows and piled on to uh, to the uh, chorus of mainstream media that of course were locked arms with the uh, police departments to say that there's no there's no uh, smiley face killers are you know it's just another Bigfoot uh, theory right. by people and she literally she literally said that the on on television she said the smiley face uh, killer theory is quote, ludicrous, arguing that the evidence does not, in any of these cases, does not even fit what is known about serial killers. This person described themselves as a criminal profiler. I still can't find, I still can't find what uh, police agency she has worked with. Wow. That's um, even more incredible because but nobody, she was making without all a background making those statements. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, well, she has some kind of, I mean, she has a company that, uh, she has a company that is a private company that calls themselves uh, criminal profilers, and they rent themselves out for something, some kind of criminal investigations, but in a private capacity. Well, but I won't name she, other names, but I've researched some of these other criminal profilers, and they're very mercenary, <laughs> very mercenary. Yeah, I mean, and she's the one, she's the one who made the famous statement, I should say infamous statement, that it's another reason this serial killer, the smiley face theory is ridiculous, is because the smiley face graffiti is not an unusual sy- symbol. And here's her quote that was published everywhere. Quote, if you look in any area five miles square, I bet you could find a smiley face. Wow. All right. She she said it's so common that you could just find it anywhere you walk. There was another case by another people that said the the smiley face symbol is too prevalent. It's not relevant. There's other investigators into these cases that's not relevant. Well, it's very relevant (laughs) when it shows up next to somebody who disappeared and then was found in water and they're missing for a long period of time. That's the problem. A booth out of Philadelphia. There was a smiley face right behind the bar. He was found. He was found. He died. I mean, according to the research that uh, Gannon and Gilbertson did, he died 24 hours before he was found, and he was missing 13 days. Yeah. Well, that that statement, that statement, which is, I mean, that statement is shaped to go to the very heart of the smiley face killer theory and destroy it. And the reason it's it's ridiculous statement is because. We all have walked around in the woods. I, you know, I go on a regular, I go on a regular jog in, in the woods. Everyone has walked around. When's the last time you randomly found a smiley face? Never. Yeah, exactly. A child could tell that this is BS, absolute BS statement yeah. to say uh, that the smiley face symbol is so common you could find it anywhere. Well, how about a smiley face with horns? Right. A lot of the a lot of the symbols were smiley faces with horns. Is that it's that com- so common too? Well, there's also could... another one with an X in the forehead, which has an occult meaning. That was like something that um, Manson used to do to his followers: is put an X on their forehead. Yes, so that's an even yeah. deeper occult meaning. Um, so there's yeah. a lot there. I mean, there's a lot I could I'd like to talk to you about, but I don't want to put it on the record. But there's the smiley face has an esoteric meaning. You know, there's a public. Yes. Meaning. 
There's a and, smiley and face it, you send on a on a messenger text, but some people use it. And a lot of words, I mean, in the occult, words have two meanings. There's all kinds of dual meanings for symbols and things like that. So, yeah. And let me just let me just I might as well just I might as well just say I mean this is this is way out there, but it's what I believe is true because according to the patterns that I see, and also because I'm a I'm a student of history and ancient religions, and I and you probably have heard me uh, put this forward before. I believe that the smiley face murders are real, that they are a group of serial killers, and that they are killing young men all over the country. Um, again, this is not based on any specific hard evidence that I have. This is based on my knowledge, skills, and experience, and the patterns and the clues that I see across these many, many, many dozens of cases all over the country that continue to occur, by the way, they with all pulled, the same MOs. They just pulled Kelleher from the, the water in Boston on Easter, um, Easter yeah. morning. So, yeah, that was... And here's, and, here's what, and here's one of the most dishonest statements I've heard. Uh, the serial killer uh, theory, uh, the smiley face killer theory is ludicrous because it, the evidence does not fit what is known about serial killers. Now, the reason that that's so that's a deceptive, the reason it's deceptive is because, it, of course, it's true. But that's because this is a novel group of serial killers. This is something we have not seen before. Correct. But so what? Everything that ever occurs is always never been seen before until it happens. That's that's the thing about the SMKs. They are doing something completely different and new. And so they always the they always make sure they have the elements of deniability built in to their actions. In other words, they will only only target uh, they will only target peep kids who have alcohol in their system. I believe that if you are if you are targeted by the SMKs and they are looking to kill you, but you go to that bar and you decide not to drink any alcohol that night, they will not target, they will not go through with it. They will not take down that I, young man. I totally agree, and I believe that there's an element of drugging with other drugs that aren't found in their system, whether it's yes. THC or something else. It may yes. not just be alcohol, but yes. there is somebody, I mean, there are stories that I have read of somebody who has been approached by some a man and asked him strange questions, and it was almost like the guy thought he was being I paced. remember that. Yeah. So yeah. there, there now, are people who've gotten away. There was a story of a guy who woke up in a river. Um, yeah. There's people who've woken up. And, you know, I think that um, the kind of slipping a Mickey roofied element, women know not to leave their drink there, but men don't. So I do think exactly. that you're absolutely right. So uh, men, exactly. don't, men aren't a really don't think they're a target population. They don't think that yes. they, they don't think walking home at night is, is a problem, you know, yes. which is a mistake. Now, Yes, and in keeping with what you just said, may I just give a PSA just for a minute please, here? Please do. Uh, this public service announcement, please, anybody listening to my voice, if you, and this is this is an awkward statement to make, but if you know any young men who are good-looking, athletic, who are uh, who are like the good-looking and athletic young men, that's to put it that way, please. Tell them, do not drink alcohol in public. I know this is hard too. I mean, I know this is hard to say, but don't drink alcohol in public. Uh, just don't do it. Go drink at the flat. Go drink at the frat house. Go drink when you're home with your friends. Don't don't drink when you're out in public because you become a target. 
uh, and the SMTs are out there. I absolutely believe they are out there, and they are scoping these young men before before the night that they're out drinking, because they are picking these young men very carefully. If you just go look at how good-looking and athletic these young men are, so just please don't drink in public. Uh, you know, if you're going to go out in public to a bar with your friends, I don't know, just drink water, drink soda, I, just drink something else. Secondly, don't if you're if you are out and you and you have to drink with your friends, stay with your friends, stay with your friends. Don't go with anyone, uh, no matter how good-looking the girl is, no matter how good-looking the boy is. Don't go out. Don't leave your friends. You come with them, go with them. Don't leave them. And thirdly, and lastly, if you're out, and I don't care how you were the captain of the football team, I don't care how athletic you are, how big and strong you are, if you're a young, good-looking guy, don't walk by yourself at night, even if it's just going out to the car, and it's and you're in a remote area. Don't walk. You're you're at the most social time in your life. You should, you're always around people. You should always be around people. Don't walk anywhere. Don't walk at night by yourself, even even if you're a football player. Just don't do it. Anyway, that's my PSA. Please, please put that out to any young men that you know. And make them listen to it because I, I put that out. I'll, I'll, I'm going to take this that out of this conversation and just do an individual thing. I've actually posted PSAs on my social media, but I really right. appreciate you making that statement because you've encapsulated so many of the case uh, histories into you know what has happened in those cases into that PSA where people walk yeah. to their car, they're alone, and there may be women involved. That's what's even more terrifying. Is oh, that. Yeah. Okay, the lure let me tell is you. A woman. The lure is a woman, right. so a man doesn't see it coming. And let me finish that PSI by just saying the reason I say this to you is because I want to save your life. And because the smiley face killers are real. They are out there and they are targeting these exact profile of young men. And just you have to keep yourself safe because they are out there and they are looking. Yeah, I can't and, even I can't even list. It's at least ten or fifteen of these young men who have left a bar by themselves, whether they got kicked out, uh, whether the kickout was very suspicious in itself, kicked out and not let back in. So there they are outside alone, you know. And then they now disappear. let me tell now let me tell you who's who is actually doing the SMK uh, killings. It is an operational group. I used to have a chart of this. Um, I probably have it somewhere. But it, this is an operational group. And the only way we know this is, is know the structure of this group is if you've worked in intelligence agencies, task forces uh, in, the, in the national security world. This is an operational group that is highly financed, that has unlimited resources, and that is constructed of, in the middle of this, it's like a triangle. In the middle, there's going to be a honeypot which means a very attractive young woman and possibly and probably a very attractive young man that is the honeypot core of the operational group then there's going to be a third person third person uh, who is going to be the logistical person the logistical uh, leader sort of who is the third man who is the person who actually makes sure everything is going smoothly that the target is doing what they're supposed to do like consuming alcohol and you know looking to i don't know get laid probably and 
And that's the person who gives the actual green light or the red light on the entire operation. Then at the outside peripheral, you're going to have the two security security people. These are going to be pretty large, strong men, most likely, because they're going to be probably very large, but also they'll be on the peripheries. So they will probably make themselves invisible. So you're, you're talking about a fire team. Uh, it's kind of like a fire team of a task force, a operational group of at least five people. That's at least five people right there. Mm-hmm. And they, but they won't be together. They'll be, you know, spread out. The security, it has to be at least two people on security because they might need to overpower a guy who was a captain of the football team very quickly and very efficiently. So therefore, the security has to be two men, at least two men. Uh, So you're talking about a fire team of five people at least, but who may not necessarily be together unless you know you're looking for them. You're not going to know that they're even together because they're only going to be giving eye signals to each other. Or sending text but, through messaging or something like exactly, that. Code exactly. Yeah, code exactly. 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 And, and most likely the security guys are not even going to be needed ever uh, throughout the entire night. But they'll still be present. Right. They'll still be there. So this is the kind of group that we're talking about. And I believe that this is, this is a functioning, highly operated, highly trained group that is carrying out ritualistic sacrifice murders because the pattern that i see here it goes back the pattern that i see here is is uh, the one that goes back to ancient religions in ancient times and you can study this you can look this up in ancient religions there used to be what's called the law of sacrifice law of sacrifice means uh, that you take the best of the flock in other words, you have a flock of sheep. You had to take the best of your rams. It always had to be the male animal. The male animal. The female animals were not good for sacrifice. They were not considered to have the whatever value is needed uh, by God or whatever. And so they were – it always had to be the male animal, the ram or, or the bull. And it had to be the most perfect animal. It had to be the animal that didn't have any defect in other words, didn't have a single gray hair on his on his uh, wool. Like the unspotted his... lamb or whatever. Exactly, exactly. It had to be the most perfect animal for if you're trying to honor your god. In this case, it's a very dark god. Uh, but they are – so that explains it always being a male. And that explains it always being these good-looking athletes, athletic young men. Because this is a sacrifice ritualistic killing. And also – under the law of sacrifice, you had to use a method of killing that actually leaves the leaves the creature leaves the creature untouched until it's time to consume them. That's why the methods, the best methods of killing the animal, the male animal, in the under sacrifice, was always water or fire, fire or water, because it doesn't harm or break any bones on the creature it's a but it can but until the moment of it the creature is being consumed and even after they're being consumed the body is not damaged and supposedly that has some connection with the spirit that is given over to the uh to the to the god yeah. or something i think that there's so, a spiritual aspect to it definitely so i believe that this this is the nature of this operational group they are probably highly they are paramilitary trained and they are and they are very real, but 
they are carrying out a religious function, which is the weird crossover here, which is the weird, and I believe that they are being that they are being funded, they are being sponsored from globalist sources. And when I say globalists, I mean the epic, the elite powers in control, the ones that tell the nations what to do and give the nations their marching orders. That's what I believe is going on. Fascinating. That's just an amazing analysis. I mean, many of my conclusions were very similar to yours. Uh, there's just, it's just like a remarkable, uh, they have to be working in a group and trained to pull this off, you know, to not just the abduction, but also the dumping, you know, so there's yes. also a very somewhat seemingly highly intelligent, concerted effort to put the bodies back in the water. That's why they're not yes. seen. That's why that. That's why the person is never seen drowned or anything. They're just found in the water. Um, but yeah, it's just a, highly it's, skilled, highly trained group, and they know what they're doing. And the most important part is the cover up afterward, because they always know they're going to be secure, and that higher ups are always going to tell the police what they're supposed to look at and what they're not. And they they're very secure that they will never. They will never be interfered with, ever. That's just incredible. Because in some of these cities, like Minnesota, where there's been so many bodies found in the water, there has there should just be a PSA for these students to be careful at night. But there's not, you know. And I think that there's also an aspect in these cases where there's a lot of money involved. The parents, you know, the universities don't want um, the parents to know their kids could be abducted and end up in yeah. the water. So I think that <laughs> yeah. that's one aspect of it. Yeah, it's the old, we don't want to hurt tourism yeah, uh, argument. It's like the, yeah. what is it, Jaws or whatever. Come on, you can't say there's right. a shark in the water. Right, this so let's, people, let's let people, right? yeah. yeah, so let's let people keep on being crunched up and eaten. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's what's so heartbreaking about this because these, these are deaths that uh, we need to prevent. Yes. We need to do something. And I, you know, as simple as, and I swear, I swear, I believe that if one of these young men are targeted by the SMKs, and he goes to that bar, and he he doesn't drink. He refuses to drink alcohol that night. I believe they will leave him alone. I think so too. Because because they have certain they're an operational group. They have certain, they're highly disciplined, and they have certain parameters that they have to work within. And if there's not alcohol in the young man's system, that that could blow their cover right there. Absolutely. That they have been so careful to build up for so long, so they get you know the police that investigative out. It's just another drunk kid. You know, yeah, he fell in the shallow water, you know, and, and they cannot. But there so. have been a few cases where people have been attempted abduction. If you go to my YouTube channel, William Ramsey Investigates, there was one in Marham in the UK where a guy was out jogging, fit the profile, young, healthy, and two guys jumped out of a van and tried to get him. And, and the police say there were other people in that van. And so that it looked like it was an operation, you know, like there were more people involved. And there was something like that that happened down here in L.A. where guys were driving around in vans abducting women. They caught them only with one, but there may have been other victims. And they would put wow. them in the van and chain them. And they weren't, they were sloppy. Not like these SFK guys. I think the SFK guys are, they make sure people get drugged first. I, and I yeah, and I don't, there. exactly. And I don't believe they would ever go after a woman. I, it doesn't fit into the ritualistic uh, aspect of these murders. I, I think they will only go after males. And that, uh, and also, but let me tell you about the uh, the one that you just said where they jumped out at the, the young man okay. uh, running. Uh -huh. Yes, let me tell you about that. Uh, there is an indicator 
that there is some breaking ranks in this operational group. And I'll tell you what it is, because they are not because when you're when you're doing an activity like this, uh, murders uh, all over all over the nation and maybe all over the world too uh, it does have some psychological toll and what happens is members of no matter how well trained the group is there can be some breaking ranks and the creation of the smiley face is an act of rebellion from within the group because that is not authorized that is definitely not authorized to be done but you know, doing, uh, there's going to be a certain amount of a, of a neurosis going on in the minds of people who are doing this kind of stuff, no matter how well trained they are. And I believe the fact that they're out there creating the smiley face, it's just kind of a way for them to blow off steam and to and to kind of let the world know, get some notoriety, and probably probably the uh, people who have been doing those smiley faces are eliminated even from the group Interesting. Uh, and and probably probably replaced by others who again probably go back to making the smiley face because they like that and they enjoy it well there that's and, interesting you say that because in booths in the case of booth there's a belief on the investigators and the mother that he was set up to be eliminated because he didn't say that he was going to be part of it you know that he oh interesting yeah so both the, that's what they think happened and there was a smiley face on that case that was uh outside of philadelphia but, yeah uh, because the only way that you're going to have a group like this functioning and doing this job so well incredibly well for so long and over such a long expanse over so many states is for them to have unlimited resources and sponsorship i mean they got to be very well financed very well trained and that is not gonna that has to be from global shop that cannot be that's not a national thing that's it's not the cia it's not some national uh, group that come above that's the only way that could be fascinating yeah that's uh well i really appreciate you providing that analysis i think your your yours is really the best that I've heard of all the people in the twenty years of of uh, people investigating this case. I think yours is really really spot on. It's amazing. So I really appreciate that. Um, you just to, to kind of wrap up, Mr. D'Souza. You are also going to be uh, coming out with other books. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, my uh, next book is uh, called The Clear Hearers, and that'll be coming out in a couple of months or so. And then I, I saw that. You have a couple other dimensionals, transcendence. You have some other kind of uh, books on similar on the same subject. What was the name of the extraterrestrial, extra dimensional one? What was that? The, the prior. Book? Oh, that's my that's my latest book that's out now. It's called the Extra Dimensionals: True Tales and Concepts of Alien Visitors. And uh, do you have like uh, a website for these books? Yes, my website is uh, johntamabooks.com. Uh, John Tama. T like Tom, A, M like Mary, A, johntamabooks.com. My uh, email is johntamabooks at gmail.com. Uh, and that I can be reached there anytime. My books are available uh, only pretty much only through Amazon and through my, because of an agreement with Amazon, uh, through Amazon. And, my, and I can put it out through my website also eventually. 
Awesome. Well, uh, I really enjoyed reading The Para Investigators. I thought it was a great book. I definitely recommend that. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about the book and your opinion about the Smiley Face Killers and put out that PSA, which I will extract from our interview and also get that out there. So thank you Good. very put, much. Put some scary music behind it okay, to wake these kids up. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's <laughs> legit. It is for real. There's no question. So Sorry, John, was, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Go I was ahead. serious. No, I, yeah. Um, John D'Souza, D'Souza, author of The Para Investigators. Thank you, Mr. D'Souza.